here tonight, and as you know, uh, on Thursday night, any question you want to ask about the Bible, and uh, um, Carmen, I'm going to go ahead and let you ask your question first. So who's got the mic over here? My first question must have went home. She's not here, so. Over here. Okay. I guess it would be too much to ask to check the battery before we start Bible study, but that's just me. <laughs> we should have sound guys. All right, listen up. We get working now? It's the, it's the direction it goes, O-N. Come on, guys. Praise the Lord. All right, listen up. Listen up. Go ahead, Carmen, hon. Um, I hope everybody can understand me. Um, my question is a question. It's a question with two questions. Okay. Um, if you are baptized, if I'm what? If if somebody is baptized, okay, and commits adultery, being married, and then commits suicide, would they lose their salvation, and then would they be in heaven with God? That's your first question. What's your second question? Oh, I'm sorry. If if the person commits adultery. Oh, I got you. Okay. Well, first of all, her question is: If a person was make sure I get this right. If a person was baptized. And then they commit adultery, and then, and then they commit suicide. Can they can they go to heaven? Okay. Well, let me clarify something first. Uh, baptism is not salvation. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that um, salvation is not what saves us. Um, I know a lot of churches teach that, and a lot of people believe that. But uh, the Bible teaches very clearly. It says, "If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus." And believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Baptism never enters into it. Baptism, once we are truly saved by trusting Christ as our own personal Savior, then baptism is an act that is a public profession of what has taken place internally in me the day I got saved. But it has nothing to do with my salvation. It has to do only with the fact that I'm demonstrating. Now, see, when we baptize people up there, we put them... Uh, we stand them up, we say, bury the likeness of Jesus' death, raise the likeness of his resurrection. We're demonstrating to the world um, that that person has been saved. And the reason why we put them under the water and bring them back up, because when Christ came down, he came down and he died. That's going under the water. Then he came back up again, the resurrection, and then to newness of life. So once a person is truly saved by trusting Christ as their own personal Savior, then we baptize them as an outward expression of what has already transpired inside them, okay? You understand that? Don't make that simple enough? Okay, now let me get to your question. 
you made a statement if a guy, uh, let's, let's put it, it put it into the context if a person was saved, okay? Um, knowing that baptism does not save you, but okay. Uh, if a person was saved and then that person committed adultery or anything, murder, whatever, would that person still go to heaven? And of course, there's a lot of people that believe today and it's taught that, um, that if you commit suicide that you can never go to heaven. And of course, that's very prevalent today. And that is just simply not true. Uh, what determines the fact whether a person goes to heaven or not is what they did with the death of Christ in their life. I'm going to walk you through the concept of suicide here, if I may, and make, make it understand for you, and, and my people need to hear it too. Um, there was never a person, whether they're, and I'm going to put it in two categories for you in a moment, but there was never a person in life who ever committed suicide and suicide is a terrible thing. But there never was a person ever in the history of the world that committed suicide that woke up on Monday morning and just said, I'm going to take my life today. There always is a progression of bad choices and problems and issues that bring them to that point. And nobody just does that. I always say that uh, suicide is... Suicide is a bad choice in a life of bad choices. But unfortunately, suicide is the last bad choice that they'll make. Nobody ever just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to commit suicide today. Um, they have a progression in their life of sometimes years of problems that have, have come into their life that they've never dealt with, uh, issues that would uh, come into their life that they would just kind of brush under the carpet. And, uh, and they've made many bad choices. Every bad choice we make will grow legs and connect to another bad choice. And it becomes a compounding effect that somebody who goes through a life of 20, 30 years of making that many bad choices, their life is going to be very complicated. Now, let me explain the two differences here. Let's take an unsaved person. An unsaved person commits suicide. Why does an unsaved person commit suicide? An unsaved person, and, and everybody's different. I mean, everybody's different. The, what, what may happen in this unsaved man's life that makes him commit suicide, the same things may happen in this person's life, and he doesn't commit suicide. So there's no key events that is going to trigger this particular person. It's going to be based on that individual, his makeup, his character, how he looks at life, his strength and his weaknesses in his own spirit, and what he can endure. Uh, in World War II, there were, um, there were uh, Jews in the concentration camps that couldn't take it, and so they threw themselves on the electric wire to, to die because they could not handle it. Other Jews went through the whole ordeal and got through. It's the difference between what is in that person that drives them. I want that understood, too. But here's an unsaved person. An unsaved person has no God in their life. They have no direction of the Holy Spirit of God in their life. They're an unsaved person. And they go through life, and they develop their own value system. And it's a value system that is not based on the true values of the principles of the Word of God. So they go through life looking at things, develop their own value system, and then living their life by that value system. What happens is, 
And, and you don't have to write all this down. We'll give you a copy of it tonight for your own to take home with you if you want to do that. I mean, save you from having to write. Uh, if I was writing as fast as you would, nobody on planet Earth or the universe would understand what I just written. But it's a thing where they, they go through and they develop their own value system. And what happens is that value system is flawed. It does not carry the truth of reality of life. And as they add things to that, I mean, they, may, they marry this person and they think this person is a wonderful person. And then they find out that they aren't. They don't have a value system to judge, should I marry this person or not? They get into life and they'll make choices. They don't have a right value system in making those choices. So they'll make those choices on their own emotion or their own feelings. They'll get into things because they have no value system that they never should get into, like pornography or this or that or drinking or drugs or whatever. And because they have no set value system that, that puts them between the white lines, they're all over the place. And those things add weight to them. But a time there, well, in, back in 40, 50 years ago, but a time a guy would be 50, 60 years old, uh, his life would be falling apart. Now, today, it's probably closer to 2025, 20, you know, because of the fact that the, the way things have gotten today. But what happens is this. That unsafe person who has no value system, he's made a lot of bad choices. Those bad choices have compounded themselves, and now it's the weight of the world on his shoulders. He may be through a bad marriage or several bad marriages. He may have lost his kids. He may have lost everything in life. He may have lost his business. He may have lost everything that, that, is, that is value to him. And what he has trusted in all his life now has collapsed around him because he had nothing that was real. And so now what he trusted in in all of his life, he's 30, 40, 50 years old, has now collapsed around him. He doesn't know how to deal with that. Now where another guy may just say, let's go get drunk. Somebody else can't handle that. So it pushes them to the point emotionally because there's no real set value system in anything in their life. It pushes them to the point where they can't handle life anymore. And they get so despondent that, that they think the only way out now is to take my own life. And that's why I said suicide is just a, another bad choice and a long list of bad choices. Nobody woke up on Monday morning and said, I'm going to commit my suicide today. I was great yesterday, but today I'm going to kill myself. It doesn't work that way. There's always a long progression of bad choices that lead to and up to a point where a person thinks there's, they get so despondent that they think that there's, there's nowhere, no way out. And the weight of everything just comes down on them. They don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. They have given their life to a system that they thought was a great system that now has betrayed them. And everything they thought was fun in life, good in life, okay to do in life has now come back and bitten them. And now they stand there empty, broken, nothing to look forward to. And because that's where they're at, they think the only way out is to commit suicide. And unfortunately, uh, people do that. And that's how an unsaved man or an unsaved woman deals with it. Does that help you make sense to you? Yes. Okay. Now let's talk about a saved person. Uh, 
And, and while I'm saying this, uh, I just need to tell you this. I appreciate your question. You timely the announcement I was going to make tonight. Uh, I forgot word today that uh, uh, Dr. Ruckman's oldest boy, uh, uh, Pete, Peter S. Ruckman Jr., committed suicide over the weekend and killed both of his sons. One was 14 and one was 12. So you're going to hear that popping up everywhere, I'm sure. So I, I'm just telling you, um, I heard it. Uh, somebody called me today, and, and I looked, Googled it on the Internet. And uh, he was a very prominent, um, a very prominent lawyer for um, getting um, prisoners um, a release. He was very prominent. He'd been on television. He was very pro I had no idea. Very prominent guy. And evidently, he went through a divorce with his wife. It was finalized in August. He took it very hard and very despondent about it. And um, he took his own life, not only his own life, but he took the life of both of his boys. One of them was 14, the other one was 12. So it's going to be a tough time and all of that. Him and Dr. Ruckman that we know uh, had been estranged for like 25, 30 years. Um, and they hadn't, he had, wouldn't have any, didn't come to his dad's funeral. It was a very bad situation. So uh, just so you know that. Um, you're going to hear a lot about that, probably going to be popping around. So I, uh, when I got on the Internet, I looked at him. I, I didn't even think it was him. I thought it was another one because it didn't look anything like it. So I called Dean down at Pensacola, and Dean said, yeah, that was him. So just so you know. So, and I don't know if he was saved or not, so it, it, I, I can't speak to that. But anyway. Uh, I wanted to put that in, so this was a good place to put it in, so now you know. Let's talk about a saved person committing suicide. How can a saved person commit suicide? Easy. Uh, it's as easy as an unsaved person. Where, where an unsaved person doesn't have any value system that is worth anything that's going to carry him through life, a child of God has the ability through the Word of God to have a value system. When that person got saved, then the Holy Spirit of God came inside them. Now he has the ability to get into a church, grow spiritually, um, get into the Bible, learn everything, and then the Bible becomes his value system. As long as he stays with that value system, he's in good shape. You hear me preach about it on Sunday morning all the time, the principles. You use the principles in the Bible to guide yourself through life. It'll tell you what to get involved in and what not to get involved in. It'll show you uh, what the consequences are by the examples in the Bible of men and women, probably a hundred thousand of them, of, of, of the cause and effect of why people do the things that they do. When a saved person, when a saved person falls into the same trap as an unsaved person, by that I mean they don't adhere to the value system. Where an unsaved man or woman cannot, a saved person can, but chooses not to. And they do the same thing as an unsaved person does. They make up their own value system. And they think that they can get away with anything and they begin to do what they want to do. Many of them never grow in the Word of God and they, they fall back into the world. Many of them get an attitude about something happens to them in, in, in church or life or whatever, so they get mad at God and never go to church again. There's a thousand reasons why people get to that point in their life. And, uh, but a saved person can get to the point where they go so long and so far 
outside of the principles of the Word of God, that even though they're still God's child, and a great example of this in the Bible would be Samson in the Old Testament. Samson was uh, God's man. He was a deliverer to the nation of Israel back in the book of Judges. And yet he's about as worthless as you could ever find in your life. He goes, makes one bad choice after another. And all through his life in there, he pays the price for it. His wife gets killed, his dad gets killed, his mom gets killed. And then finally, he meets the love of his life, Delilah, bad choice. And, you know, she takes from him uh, all the power of God, which he had in his hair. Now, hair in the Bible is a picture of our submissiveness. He wove his hair into seven locks. We call them braids, corn stalks. Which I'm thinking about myself. They'd be kind of short. They'd look like the little antennae on an ant, but that's okay. He, he wove his hair into seven locks. Now that's suggestive because in the Old Testament, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God operates through seven spirits. So it shows that he was, he was everything that God wanted him to be, but he kept making bad choices. The first words recorded out of his mouth is, I've seen a woman. And it goes downhill from that. And when he met Delilah, Delilah obviously takes from him that strength that God gave him, and he winds up, uh, he winds up, uh, as a slave for the Philistines, they hook him between two columns and he's grinding wheat for them while they're making fun of him and everything. And then what happens is God comes back down to him and he says, you know, Lord, I really messed this up. I, I, nothing I can do. And, and I'm, I'm bound now. And what am I going to do? I've messed up everything you've asked for me to do. And God says, well, there is one thing you can do. If you want to, if you want to, if you want to, um, if you really want to um, fix this thing, then here's what we'll do. The problem is, Samson, in the process, you're going to die. And Samson becomes one of the seven suicides in the Bible. There's seven people who commit suicide in the Bible. When you study them out, it gives you a complete orthographic study of, super, of, of suicide and gives you the insight of what goes in a person's mind uh, when they do that. And so... Uh, he, he pulls the pillars down, he kills everybody, but he dies himself. So he's one of the suicides in the Bible, but he's a picture of a Christian. He's a picture of a Christian who did his thing all his life, refused to follow the principles, refused to follow, and got himself in more messes than you could ever imagine. And many times, now listen to me very carefully, many times the only difference between a saved person and an unsaved person will be simply that, one is saved and one isn't. An unsaved person, a saved person can do everything an unsaved person can do except go to hell when they die. But he can do all of the sins that an unsaved person does. And many of them do. Lavishly. So it's a thing where when you understand that the concept of suicide is basically a person going their own way and making their own choices and then getting so far down. You see... For an unsaved person, he goes through life doing all the things that he wants to do, thinking that that's going to satisfy him and make him happy. Wild parties, drugs, more money, big cars, big houses. 
He gets the wrong value system and he thinks all of that is going to make me complete and it isn't. So it collapses around him and he falls down, he falls apart. The Christian, the Christian on the other hand, he has everything to make him complete. The Holy Spirit of God is living inside him who wants him to, and saved him to do the work of God. He refuses to do that. Bible says he grieves the Holy Spirit of God and through a process of time, he grieves that Holy Spirit of God so bad because he will not do. And he thinks now that, that the world is going to satisfy him when the truth of the matter is if you're saved here tonight, the only thing that will make you complete and satisfy you will be the Word of God and you doing what God has called you to do in your life. So when he doesn't do that, he also tries to put everything else in the world in and his world collapses. And based on the strength of their spirit, who they are, how they handle adversity, some of them will fall apart and take their own life as an unsaved person. Some of them as a saved person will fall apart. They'll think that they're as, they get so far down that they can't get back. And it's not a matter that God couldn't get them back. And it's not a matter in a case of an unsaved person that God would not save them if they wanted to. And it's not a case with a saved person that he couldn't get right with God if he wanted to. The problem is not God. The problem is we put so much clutter in our lives that sometimes we can't get through all the clutter to get back where we need to be. And that's not God's fault. God intended your life and my life to be basically problem-free. And, of course, he gives us the Word of God and the principles in the Word of God that if you make that your value system, then your life is generally going to be a lot better and, and, prob and less problematic than somebody who doesn't follow it. But when you don't follow it, whether you're saved or you're lost, the value system that you put in your life will collapse around you. And when that happens, you're left destitute. And a man or a woman's spirit at that point many times just folds up and they can't go any farther. So the reason why they commit suicide is because they have got a whole life of years of bad choices that have swallowed them up. And now they've gotten so complex and so bad that they think there's no way out of it. There is always a way out of it, but you all know as well as I do, you can bury yourself in a hole so deep that you can't see the light anymore. And that's what happens, even though the light's still there. That happens in an unsafe person and in a safe person. So it isn't a matter of what, they, what sin they commit. The only sin that will send a man to hell, it isn't drunkenness, it isn't adultery, it isn't murder, it isn't drugs. The only sin that will send a man or a woman to hell is not trusting the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and applying it to their sins. That's the only thing that will send a person to hell. And of course, once a person gets saved, he now has the ability to not do those things anymore. But if he doesn't apply the Bible, he's going to slide back into it. Once a person gets saved, it's not a question of you being a sinner anymore. It's now a question of are you, God's, are you a good son of God or not. It's not a matter that once I'm saved, am I a sinner or not. I'm always going to be a sinner. The question for me, who I am saved, as the same of question for you if you're saved, is not are, uh, how does God look at your sin? Are you a sinner as an unsaved person? No. The question now is what kind of son are you? Are you an obedient or are you a disobedient son? And once a child is born into our physical family, no matter what we may do, we can disown them, 
we can say, you're not my child anymore. I'm never going to speak to you again. I'm never going to think about you. It doesn't change the fact that that's still your child because they were born of your seed. And when they die, they're going to have your name on their tombstone. And if they would take out their blood or their bones, they'd have your DNA in them. You can't change that. And just like physically you can't change it, when a person trusts Christ as their own personal Savior, the Bible says we're born of his seed. And it's not a question today, am I a sinner or not? I am a sinner. The question is, am I standing here before you tonight, am I an obedient child of God or a disobedient child of God? But I'm always his child. So where an unsaved man or woman will commit, them, commit suicide as a sinner, a Christian will commit suicide as an unfaithful child to his father. But he's still his child. Now, there's consequences to that at the judgment seat of Christ, obviously. But you're always his child. Does that help you? Good. Good. And anytime you'd have any questions at all about that, you can ask him here. You can get a hold of me. Woody can answer him. And we'll, we're here for you to help you. Okay, we love you very much. And I hope you keep coming because you're really a sweet lady. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. You're going to commit suicide and show us how it's done? No. Okay. Um, is, there, is there one element that connects the seven suicides together? Keep talking to is there one element, a character flaw or a character Is there one element that ties all the seven suicides together? Yes, there is. Uh, there is one element that will tie all suicides together, and it's a common element whether they're saved or lost, and that is selfishness. A person who commits suicide is not thinking about anybody else. They're only thinking about themselves. They're focused on their problem. And, of course, uh, Nowhere in the Bible, in any of the books that Paul writes with the churches in, 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 that are doing the job, do you ever find anybody who committed suicide? The people who commit suicide are the people who aren't doing what's right. And uh, we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of problems in Christianity today that will lead people uh, to really get depressed, uh, anxiety, uh, the drama in most of God's people's lives should get an Academy Award at the, at the Emmys. I mean, it's just, a, or the Enemas. It should get an Academy Award. <laughs> but it's a thing where we, um, we just, we, we get our lives so complicated. And God never intended it to be complicated. It's an easy, it's an easy thing if we just stick with the Bible. But once we get out of fellowship, then life becomes about us what I'm going through, my drama, my problem. We cease to see everything else around us because now we get focused on just us. And an unsafe person does the same thing. They do it easier than a, than a they usually go into it that way. But, uh, but selfishness is the one key that pulls everything together. It's a point where we get to the place where we, like, it, it, we, it's all about us, our problems, our issues. And uh, we can't see anything that's truth or reality because of the fact that we're in the way of everything. And most of the time, that selfishness comes in because we've spent our whole life catering to what we wanted. And we've trained our flesh to, to want and get everything it wants. Now we come to the point where uh, it breaks down and uh, it all falls apart. Years and years and years ago, I had a farmer and his wife from Kansas came in to see me, and his wife called me on the phone. I, I didn't really know them. She called me on the phone, and she said, my husband's going through some really, really, really tough times. 
and uh, he's thinking about committing suicide. We're afraid, we're scared, uh, all of this stuff. And she says, could we, I, I hear you have a counseling ministry. Could, could, could we come in and talk to you? And I said, absolutely. So he comes in, and uh, typical Kansas farmer, about six foot seven, <laughs> lean and mean, coveralls, dirt under his fingernails, my kind of guy. And this guy, it was very easy to understand the pattern that he was going through. I tried to, I talked to him about the Lord, he'd never been saved. And I asked him why he was depressed and why he, he felt the way he did and tried to get the, some answers out of him. And what had happened was, is the fact that he had had a, he had had a partial stroke and the doctor says that he could not do the farm anymore and he could not do anything that he once did. Uh, to, the, to the level that he did it. And as I talked with him, it became very clear. I don't think I ever got through to him because he didn't ever get saved. But I, I, I could see very clearly what the problem was. Here's a guy who probably never took a sick day off work in his life. He is, stands for the generation in this country that is a phenomenal generation. I, I look at them as a national treasure. Uh, when they're gone, the world, this world is in trouble. Many of them, like he did, went through the Depression. He had weathered everything in life as a young man. He worked hard. He built that farm, he, that land that he had in Kansas. If you know about farming in Kansas, it's like farming on the backside of the moon. It's absolutely almost impossible, yet he, he, he survived it. He made crops. He did, and he did that all because he had the strongest will of anybody I ever saw. He was a self-made man in every sense of the word. What happened was, and I told him this, I said, you have trusted all your life in yourself and your ability to do things that are phenomenal. And now you know what? Your body has failed you. You had a stroke, and the very your problem or your depression simply comes down to this. The very things that you trusted in now have let you down. And I said, if you would have trusted years ago in the Word of God and its principles, you would have enjoyed the farm, you'd have done it, you'd have seen it in the right perspective, and then when you'd have had the stroke and you couldn't have done it anymore, you'd have been okay with that because you know that was part of God's plan, and now I'm just going to sit back and let God give me what he wants me to have and enjoy what I have. And, but your God lets you down, and your God was you. And now he's at the point, at that point, when he's just depressed, he can't get out of bed, he can't function, he wants to die. And, of course, the great chapter on depression in the Bible is Elisha, you know, Elijah over there in, in King. So... We, we, we saw all of this happening in his life, and there wasn't one thing that anybody was going to do about it. He was 75 years old, if I remember right, maybe 76. And he had come to the point where at 75 or 76, you're not going to change a guy who has lived that way his life all of his life. And it was a tragedy. And I wished I could have helped him, but I, I, I don't think I really did. So, yeah, the key thing is self. When a person commits suicide, they're only thinking of where they're at. This is why people ask the question, well, he had a wife, he had kids. Why would he do that to them? Because he's only thinking of himself. I mean, you know, he, he, had, he had little kids, and he had, a, he had a business, and he had a wife, and he had, or she had a husband. and she had, Why would they do that? Because all they're thinking about is their self. 
They don't think anymore about other people. Their world is preoccupied with them, and it has been for a long time. So all they do is think of where they're at, my issues, where I'm at, my drama, what I'm going through. And in their mind, what they're going through is the worst thing on the planet, when in actuality, it isn't. And they didn't have to be there. They got there because they chose to be there. The longer I have lived my life, and I'll take little kids out of the picture here who get molested by some pedophile or, or, or whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll give them victim status. But the longer I live my life as a Christian and the more I deal with people, the more I realize how few victims there really are out there. There's not a lot of victims out there. We put ourselves in situations that we should never put ourselves in, then we want to claim the victim status, play the victim card. The longer I work with people and the longer I'm doing the ministry, and you'll see this is true in your own life, you realize that other than children who cannot stick up for themselves, um, there are very few victims in life. Uh, a woman gets beat up by her husband and on a continual basis, and we like to look at her as a victim. She's a victim because she chooses to be a victim. First time he lays a hand on it, put him in jail. And don't bail him out. Then press charges. I guarantee you. She said, he'll lose his job. That's probably a good thing. Well, everybody will know. That's probably even a better thing. Bring him to the point where he hits the brick wall. If you don't hold anybody accountable, they're going to go on and do what they're doing. And what do we do? We allow them to do that. We stay in that situation. Then we want to claim the victim status. Doesn't work that way. You're not a victim. And it's a thing where that's the world that we live in today. Everybody wants to be a victim. And you know what? You don't have to be a victim. You have the Word of God and the principles that will tell you how you will ever have to be put into any situation that you don't want to be put in. But we allow ourselves to be put in those situations. And ultimately, in time, that's what leads to somebody committing suicide. The fact that their life now is completely gone from their standpoint. They see no future in it. Uh, a child of God, an unsaved person has no ability, and a child of God has the ability, but sometimes he buries himself in so many deals that he can't, he can't get out of it. And um, that's how you got it. And selfishness is the one key word that pulls it all together. Yep. Yep. Next question. Does that, does that finish, help you with it? Okay. Okay. Next question. Okay. Go ahead. No, okay, go ahead. Um, could you lay out the seven things that a Christian has to prove? You talked about it all Yeah, the seven things a Christian has to prove? Sure. Seven things. I talked about this Sunday. Seven. Now, there's a lot of things where the Bible says we prove in the Bible, but when you boil it all down, it comes into these seven. So you may find other things out there, and I'm, what I'm telling you is these are the bottom line ones here. Everything else will fall into these. Now, these are the seven things that you and I have to prove. And I, and I made this Sunday uh, as I was talking about the fact that God's people today, the very thing that God puts the emphasis on in His Word that we are to, to know uh, are the things that we don't know. And uh, this is part of the problem of us getting the wrong value system. And uh, now the first one here will be in Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. We want Malachi chapter 3. 
Now he says in verse 8, we'll start at the paragraph mark, uh, Malachi 3, 8, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, but ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? Uh, and he says, In tithes and offerings. Uh, ye are cursed with a curse, for ye rob me, even this whole nation. Now he's talking about the nation of Israel here, but he's obviously setting a good precedent and a good principle for the New Testament. Most of the, the, the doctrinal, historical things in the Old Testament are great practical principles for you and for me, and this is, this is truly one of them. So he says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that ye may be meat in mine house, and, and prove me. Now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, it will not open up your windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, and there shall be not room enough to receive it. So the first thing that he talks about that a Christian has to prove is God himself in you giving to him what he wants in tithes and offerings and then trusting him that he's going to come through for you. And uh, so the first aspect of proving is proving God in your giving. And this is a problem for a lot of God's people. We, we, we don't preach on giving around here. Uh, I don't think I've ever preached a message on it. Um, here in my life at all, uh, ever, and I just, I just don't, just don't do that. Uh, I figure that if you teach a person the Bible and they fall in love with God, giving just takes care of itself, and that is true in most cases. Obviously, it's not true in all cases, but it doesn't matter to me. God always pays for what He orders. The day I have to worry about money is the is the day that I won't be worried about giving you the truth when I stand up to preach, and that ain't going to happen. There are some things that are God's job and there's something that's my job. It's God's job to get your heart to the place where you be everything that God wants you to be and do those things. It's my job just to focus when I stand up in that pulpit or I'm up here, I give you the truth. So the first proving then for a Christian that he has to prove, you have to prove God. Is God really going to take care of you? Do you really trust him to take care of everything in your life? And, uh, you know, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that God says over and over again that the way the church exists is by the uh, three aspects of, of giving. And the tithe, uh, and I know people say, well, it's not taught in the New Testament. I get that. But it is taught in principle in the Old Testament. And one of the greatest pictures of one of the greatest New Testament Christians' life in the Old Testament, Abraham, the Bible teaches us three aspects of giving. Abraham gave the tithe, Abraham gave the offering above the tithe, and then Abraham sacrificially gave when he gave his son. So it sets the precedent for us that, uh, that that's, that's where it starts. But uh, that's, that's, that's between the person and God. That's none of my business. And it's a thing where, um, but you'll never be where God wants you to be, and you'll never fully trust God until you can trust him with what the most precious thing in all of our lives, and that's our money. And uh, most, a lot of people, a lot of God's people, uh, the God of the Bible isn't their God, it's the God of their wallet. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, you have, to, you have to prove God. You have to be able to trust Him. And if there's any place that you have to really exercise trust and trust in God, it's when it comes down to your finances. Because, you know, it's one of those things that, is a key area. Now the second one is found in Romans chapter 12. Now 
And like I said, you'll find a lot of, a lot of other places, but they all boil down into these seven. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So verse 1 talks about the fact that, that we're to present our body as a living sacrifice. And uh, that is, it's holy. That's the first thing. Uh, acceptable unto God. It'll never be acceptable unto God till it first is holy. Uh, and uh, which is your reasonable service. Now, I always thought that was a good uh, word to use. Um, that God thinks it's only reasonable after what he did for you that you present your body a living sacrifice for him. You see, he became our dead sacrifice on the cross. He did that so you could be a living sacrifice for him. And after understanding his death on the cross, he just doesn't think it's unreasonable for you to live your life for him. Isn't it strange how unreasonable God's people think it is to live their life, but they don't think it's unreasonable to take his salvation? God's people are a mess. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, here it comes, that you may prove. Now here's what the second thing a Christian's got to prove. He has to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect uh, word of God. And so when you uh, get saved, then, and you present your body a living sacrifice, you're proving something to the unsaved world. You're proving the will of God. Now, we know the difference between the will of God and the plan of God, and most of God's people make them, make them the same, and of course we know that's not true. God has a plan. If you're saved here tonight, God has a plan for you. You probably, in most cases, will not realize that plan. Most of God's people don't. Some of you will. But God saved you for a reason, and that reason, He has a plan for you. That wasn't to have kids. It wasn't to get married. It wasn't to work at the place that you work at. That's not God's plan. God's plan is something that he wants you to do for him by presenting your body a living sacrifice and some specific thing that he wants has planned for you. And we get it all out of whack. We think, well, you know, and I hear him all the time. You know, some kid will get up, he's a missionary or going to be a pastor or he's in a church, and he says, well, you know, I, I think God's will for me is to, is to be a missionary. I think God's will for me is to be a pastor. I think God's will for me is to be a professional Christian singer, whatever. And of course, that's never God's will for anybody. God's plan for you may to be a missionary. God's plan for you may to be a Christian singer. God's plan, if there is such a thing, God's plan for you may to be a pastor. Um, God's plan for everybody is different. And we make the will of God and the plan of God two different the same thing, and it's not. The will of God is what you are. The plan of God is what you do. And the will of God in your life and my life is the same. God may have a different plan for everybody in this room. I hope you figure it out someday. But God's will for us will always be the same. And God's will for you tonight is the same for everybody in this room. God wants you to be more like His Son today than you were yesterday. He wants you to be more like Christ every day of your life. That's God's will for you. And when you fulfill God's will for you, you don't have to ever worry about God's plan being fulfilled for you. Most people worry about the plan so much and never get to fulfilling the will. If you'll be more like Christ every day of your life and you work at it and realize that, I guarantee you whatever you're doing for God will be exactly what God wants you to do. It just works that way. You have to prove that. 
Notice it's, it says there uh, the, uh, that you may prove what is that good. God's will for your life is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's better than anything else that you'll do. We were talking about suicide a few moments ago. If you find, if you see God's will for your life as the good thing, you'll never go down the suicide road. And then the next thing he says, what is that good and acceptable? God won't accept anything less than you proving what God's will is in your life. That's what God will accept of you. And of course, the last thing is, is the uh, perfect. God's will for you is perfect because his son is perfect. And in your, in your plan for God for your life, it may be imperfect. Because you're going to deal with people, you're going to deal with this, you're going to have to make decisions, they don't want to always be right. So the plan of God for your life may not always be perfect. Because you'll make mistakes, but the will of God for your life will always be perfect because it's based on Him. And as long as you have the will of God in your life and you're proving that, the rest of everything in your life will take care of itself. So that's the second one. The third one is in 2 Corinthians 8.8. 8. And he says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the frowardness of others uh, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. And of course, the third thing that you have to prove uh, is the sincerity of your love for him. And of course... Uh, this is the great chapter, chapter 8 and 9 in 2 Corinthians, um, that again, um, uh, people want to use to uh, beat people over the head to give, because in these two chapters it talks about their giving, uh, 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 they're giving for the poor saints in Jerusalem, and that, so everybody uses that, and yet uh, the key, they missed the whole key to it, is that the key here is not the fact that they gave money. The key here is the fact that the Bible says that they gave them themselves first. That's the key. In other words, they weren't holding themselves. If you don't hold yourself back from God, you will never hold back what you give to God. You only hold back what you give to God because you're holding back yourself from God. And the Bible says here that these people gave them themselves first. And of course, they proved the sincerity of their love, not by their giving of their money, but by the giving of their own selves first. And that's how you prove your love for God. What do you do for Him based on what He did for you? Um, we use the word love so cheaply today because the world has just completely cheapened it. And unfortunately, it's, it's crept into Christianity today. And, um, you know, we as Christians, we, we love God like the world loves each other. Uh, Christianity today falls in love with God. And, uh, you know, when you fall in love with God, when something else better comes along, then you'll fall out of love with God. It's like relationship today. People fall into a relationship with another person, and then 
something better comes along or uh, it's not real and so then they fall out of it. Happens all the time. And of course the uh, true relationship you build with, with God, like a true relationship you build with a person, is not built on, 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 on falling in love with them, it's building on knowing them. And as you know them, then you learn to love them. And a relationship with God doesn't come because you fall in love with Him. I, I, all my life I've seen Christians that came down, we have them here, not so much here, but I've seen them here, but I've seen them all my life. You know, you'll have a church service and you'll give an invitation and four or five people will come down, you know, and get saved and um, praise the Lord, da 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 it's a wonderful time. And uh, they'll come to church for a week, two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months, and then you don't see them anymore. And, you know, there's all kinds of excuses for somebody like that. Um, I always like to keep things simple. They just got a better deal. That's all. They fall in love with God on Sunday night and two months later they get a better deal and they fall in love with something else. You know what? When you got saved, you didn't know how to love God. You may have been thankful that He saved you and you may believe that for God so loved the world, but you didn't understand that love. And if you don't get into the Bible after you get saved and learn how to love God, you'll just love Him like you love everything else in life. We are famous and we all do it. I do it too. But I always give everybody a tough time about it. We are famous in the Christianity of loving things that can't love us back. Boy, I love that car. Boy, I love that motorcycle. Man, I love that shotgun. Man, I love that boat. Man, I love that fishing rod. Man, I love that camper. Man, I love that dress. Man, I love those earrings. Man, I love those shoes. We spend our whole life loving things that can never love us back. Now, I'm not saying that's totally wrong because we all have preferences and we have things, and I know how people use it. Um, you know, I love this dress. It doesn't make me look fat. I love these shoes. It makes my feet look small. You know, I, I love this car. It makes me look sexy. I, I love this. I love that. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But you know what? We get so caught up in loving the things of this world that can't love us back. In all of that, we lose our perspective of loving the one being on this planet who will shower you with unbelievable love back to you that you can spend the rest of your life a thousand times a day telling him you love him and it'll never be enough. The greatest relationship you'll ever have. And yet we waste it because we're loving cars. We're loving shoes. We're loving hats. We're loving dresses. We're loving boats. We're loving this. We're loving that. Uh, it, it's a thing where we spend our whole lives loving things that can't love us back. And that's why when you love God, you have to prove that sincerity of your love. You know how you do that? You give Him everything you are first. He doesn't want your bank account. He wants you. There's a lot of people who give God money that won't give God themselves. That, is, that doesn't mean anything. God wants you. If He has you, He'll have everything about you. And the only way you prove that sincerity is the giving of your own selves first. Well, the next one is in Colossians chapter 1. Wonder how old J. Frank Norris is doing up there.
Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. That's not it. Um, two, I'm sorry, verse two. Three, one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from... That's not it either. Where did I got that there? Um... This one is to make, um, uh, it's, where? Is it 1-12? One, one who? Is it 1-12? One 1-5? One 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 no, it's the one that says, uh, prove your calling. Um, Let me look back here in my Huh? No. No, this I'm sorry. What did you say it was? What? What did you say? Second Peter one. Second Peter one. Second Peter one. Okay, let's see what that is. I got the wrong reference down here. Okay. Second Peter one ten. Let's go there. No, it's got the word prove in it. Um, it actually says prove your calling. Anybody got a... I'm sorry? Galatians 6 1. I think that's it. Let's go to Galatians. Yeah, here we go. Galatians 6, 4. Well, that's prove his own work. We want uh, your calling. That's where we're going to go. Oh, we're going to get the last one. But this one says prove your calling. See if there's not one in Colossians. 1 Corinthians 7.20. Okay, let's see that one. Nope. It says prove, it has the word prove in it. 
Where? What does it say? I'll take that one, but I don't think that's the one I'm looking for. That's good enough, though. Where is it? Second Peter 1.10. It says what I want it to say. I'll find the other one. Second Peter 1.10. Uh, that says you're calling, sure. I got it. Well, look, the one I'm looking for has the word prove in it. Not in your Bible. <laughs> Let me look back here. I, I, I wrote so small, I can't read. Hey, Rose, bring me a, bring me a, you got a concordance in there? Bring me a concordance up here. I'm going to find it now. Eight twenty-two, Second Corinthians. No. All right, this doesn't require a lot of talking. I'm trying to concentrate up here. All right. Oh yeah, I like this. All right, here we go. Let, go down the list here. Number one was proving God in Malachi, will of God in Romans 12, sincerity of your love in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 
Number four we haven't got yet is yourself. Number five is your work. Number six is, oh, okay, I, there wasn't one for your calling. Okay, I got it. Here's what they are. Go to 2 Corinthians 13, 5. All right, Second Corinthians thirteen five. Here's your here's your fourth one. <laughs> Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know that you uh, uh, know ye not your own selves. How that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate. Now, uh, this one here is you have to prove your own self. Though there's three things here that a Christian has to do. Uh, examine yourself, then you prove yourself, and then you know yourself. And those are the three key areas for anybody who's going to um, do something for the Lord. You have to, on a daily basis, examine yourself. Then you have to prove yourself. And then you have to know your own self. You know your limitations and where you're at. That's the fourth one. The fifth one here is uh, I, I, I think it's Colossians 1.20 and it's your work. Let's look at that one. I cannot read my writing here. When I, what is it? All right, Galatians 6.4. I cannot read my own writing. Yeah, here we go. Galatians 6.4. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall, and then shall uh, he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Now, that's a great verse. Um and Paul made a statement in Romans chapter 16 that when he was building his churches and he started churches, he said that in Romans chapter 16 that he wouldn't build on another man's foundation. And uh, what he means by that is, is the fact that he's not going to take people from one church to start another one, uh, but somebody else is already building. And that doesn't prove anything. Uh, in the ministry, what proves um, your own work is that let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Because what you built, the work that you built, was built by you and God. You didn't build on another man's foundation. And, of course, this is unheard of today because most people wouldn't know how to build a church if their life depended on it. So the only way they can do it is by ripping them off of somebody else uh, and starting a church. But he says there that you have to prove your own work, and when you do that, you can rejoice in yourself the fact that you and God did it uh, and not in another man's work or in another, and that's what he's talking about here. 
Now the sixth one is First um, Thessalonians 5:21, which is a familiar one we use all the time. First Thessalonians 5.21. And here he says, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Now that's a general term for every Christian that um, before you get into something, no matter what it may be, you have to prove it out. God's people are famous for rushing into things, anything, without ever proving it. And that's what gets us into trouble most of the time. And we can't, uh, we have to prove what... Uh, we have to prove what uh, all things in our life. And that means that no matter what it is, and of course the way you prove it is by, the Bible talks about trying the spirits and through the principles of the Word of God. The Word of God will always show you through its principles what is real and what is not real. And you don't have to wonder about what is real or what is not real based on the fact that you, um, you, know, you have the principles that exactly tell you that. Everything in the Bible that you're going to, excuse me, everything in the world that you're going to experience um, is recorded and laid out for you in the Bible. The more you get into the Bible, the better you see those things. And the more valuable you become in being able to assess certain circumstances and, and dealing with situations that people get into. And, you know, this is why we put the emphasis here on, on biblical principles that you learn in the Bible because you're going to find that every issue in life that you're ever going to be up against, whether you're working with somebody or whether you're experiencing it yourself or whether you're going through it with your family or, or whatever, the answer is going to be found within the principles of the Word of God. You have to get those principles and then use them and operate them. You know, I, I told you a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning that a lot of people just like to storehouse the principles. They want to you know, put them in a notebook someplace. And, of course, principles that don't become personal to you uh, won't be any good to you. Uh, they've got to mean something to you, and you've got to learn how to apply them. That's the only way you learn through life. You know, I, I was talking to Carolyn uh, up in Nebraska, who uh, is the mother of J. Frank Norris. <laughs> and we were talking about principles, and I said, I said, you know, Carolyn, I said, you're a classic example of what I'm talking about. I said, we, and I had forgotten how many years we had been together because I taught a Bible study with them up there like 12, 13, 14 years ago, and I've forgotten about that. Uh, but since we have been involved up there in Lincoln, you know, uh, Carolyn and I have, uh, you know, talked about a, a lot of things in the Bible. And um, just in the course of her life with her own family, uh, with, um, you know, dealing with situations, she would call me and she would not know how to handle a certain situation that she had to deal with. And so I would walk her through it, and I would show her the examples in the Bible, and she was always good, uh, she, was, she was always good at, at calling me, and now she calls you guys, the ladies that she works with. But back in the day, you know, she would call me, and I would, I would lay out for her what she needed to do and show her. But the amazing thing about her is the fact that she actually would do it. And she would take those things and she would infuse them into her family. Uh, she would infuse them into her kids. And uh, she would actually 
take the principles and, and not only apply them, but use them. And in doing so, that's what really helped her grow and learn um, the Word of God to the point where <coughs> she, she pretty much handles situations. And I talk with her on a regular basis. <coughs> she has a really good handle on things. And I use her as an example because here's somebody who's not in our church per se. She lives up in Lincoln, <coughs> but she's smart enough to know that God has given her a church, given her a pastor, who then when she doesn't know how to handle things in life, she doesn't try to fly by the seat of her pants and, and make a big mess out of it. She doesn't pretend she knows more about the Bible than she does it. And by this time, she knows a good deal about the Bible. Why? Because she's applied the principles and she's used it. And you kids have seen it in her own life. I mean, you, you're, she's your mom. You know it's true. And I know that, uh, you know, Caleb, I know she had all kinds of problems with you, and I worked her out, and she straightened you out. I want you to know that. And look how good a boy you are. And, uh, and Kenzie, you've gotten past your drug habit and your drinking, and I'll tell you what, I'm just so proud of you. Uh, you know, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I'm just amazed at how God closed up the needle marks in your arm to such a great degree. And, you know, and you know what I'm saying is true, guys, because she, she held the line with you with the Bible. She really did. And, it, and I told Carolyn, I said, you know, Carolyn started out being this meek little girl who didn't want to say, you know, and now she's a lion. She will rip your head off, man. And she, and, but that's what principles do. Principles build confidence in your life that what you're doing is the right thing. And when you don't do the right thing and you have problems with your kids, problems in this and that, it destroys the confidence that you have. And you're not sure what you're doing. You can be sure of what you're doing because of the principles. And this is what this church is here for. And, you know, this is what I'm here for. Forget me now. I've got guys and gals who are doing it, you know, with people that they really don't need me to do it anymore. But back in the day, you know, she would call me and she would say, Bob, you know how she is. Help me with this. Lay this out. And I'm dealing with this. And I'd say, slow down, Carolyn. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Tell me what's going on. Well, Caleb's out there, you know, and he's doing this and that. And Kenzie, you know, we found marijuana under her bed and all these things, you know, and I don't know what to do with it, you know. And she's got heroin and she's got tracks up her arms and all these things. We think she's shooting it between her toes and we're not sure what's going on. None of that is true, obviously. I'm just being way over the top here. But, you know, I, 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 and I watch it here with you guys all the time, but it's such a refreshing thing to see it somebody from a distance like that. That somebody actually was committed to learning the principles. That's the key. She just didn't want to f make her family the best, and she obviously has, but she was committed to doing it and, and, and committed to the principles. That's what makes the difference. She wasn't trying to put it together and pretending she knew what she knew. She didn't, she didn't know. She called and found out. You know why? She realized she had one chance with her kids, and she wasn't going to mess that up. And, and, you know, and that's, and she, she's a very principled person. So, you know, it's a thing where, you know, you have to prove all things. And you're going to have every circumstance in life is going to come your way, especially if you have a family. And thinking that you just are going to fly by the seat of your pants because it sounds really good and you don't have a principle to back up what you're doing, you're playing Russian roulette. And you're going to blow your brains out all over the kitchen table. 
And it's the difference between somebody who just wants the principles but will never do anything with them to somebody that wants the principles and then is committed to applying them. And family speaks for itself. I mean, here we got you here. We got you there. We got Logan up there. We got your sister up there. And now we got J. Frank Norris out there, which I'm just telling you impresses the fire out of me. I mean, I, what, do we, what do you say to that? I mean, he could have been a sports figure. He, I mean, who in his right mind, other than one of your family members, would want to be J. Frank Norris at a school? I, I mean, it's just to me, that's just the greatest thing. I called him. I called him tonight before he went up there. You know, I called him and I said, "Look, I said, is J. Frank Norris there?" You know, and he says, "Hi, Bob. How are you?" And I, I said, "Let him have it, son. Let him have it." Anyway, the last one, 2 Corinthians 6, 4. I, I just, I, you know, what did I say? Second Corinthians? Huh? All right. Just give me a minute here. Yes. This is it. But in all things, approving themselves as the ministers of God in much patience and afflictions and necessities and distresses. Now, there's where you have to prove uh, your ministry. And your ministry will be proven by the things that you go through. And at the end of the day, are you still standing? That's the key. And of course, he says, uh, but in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God. In much patience. I, I guess th th probably the one key word for ministry would be that word, patience. Uh, you, you, have to, you have to have patience because... Uh, you're going to have afflictions and you're going to have necessities and you're certainly going to have distresses. And then if you read down in 5 and 6, or, or verse 5, then you've got even more things going on. But the key number one word that you're going to prove uh, that you're right for the ministry is your patience. Um, a lot of people don't have patience with people. Um, you know, it's a thing where patience is something that, you know, will get somebody and they don't, jump through the hoops the way we think they should in the time that we should. Um, and so then we become impatient with them. And I understand there has to be a cutoff point in everybody's life uh, where you just simply say, this is going nowhere. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to do it anymore. I get that. Uh, but in most cases, that's not true. You know, I, when I look at people and what they struggle with, um, I try to be very long-suffering with them. I, I try to be patient with them, probably to a fault. But I just can't get past the, you know, somebody will say, how long are you going to put up with that person? Well, God put up with me for 19 years. And I'm sure glad he didn't listen to some of you. Because he'd have give up, let me tell you, old Mel Sabaka never gave up on me. Never did. Everybody else did, he didn't. <laughs> And I thought I was smarter than him. I was your typical kid. You know, my, we, went to, we went to church there at the Canton Baptist Temple, and, and we, uh, 
you know, I grew up there, and, and I don't know what happened. I was probably, I think I was six or seven, maybe eight years old. And my mom and dad got mad at the preacher about something. Now, we lived right across the street from the old church. Still there. It's a charismatic church now. And, and my mom and dad got mad about something with the preacher, and they quit going to church. I think I know what it was, but I ain't sure. But they got mad at the preacher and quit going. And my mom did what all moms do when uh, they won't go to church. She wanted to make sure that I went to church. So she sent me and my sister to church. Little did my mom know that you have to take your kids to church. You can't just send them to church. So when I went to church, I didn't pay attention to anything either. I remember in the junior high, they had, I wasn't paying attention to anything. And, um, you know, and so after a while, you know, I, I did what my mom and dad did. I quit coming to church. And by this time, <clears throat> the church had moved from there out to the location where it's at now, which is quite a ways. They had on visitation uh, night um, uh, where they went out and they would visit everybody. And I, uh, I, I hated Tuesday nights because I knew they were coming to see me. Back in the day, Tuesday night at 7 o'clock was combat with Rick Jason and Vic Morrow. I remember that little series. Only one or two of you, okay? Combat was my favorite thing. And every night when combat would come on at 7 o'clock by 7.20, they'd come. And it would just ruin my whole night. And they'd send the high school, they'd send the kids out, you know, and they'd say, same thing, we'd, we'd like to have you come to church. You know, we really miss you. Okay, I get it, thank you, I'll be there this Sunday. And I wasn't going to go to church this Sunday. I, I, I didn't want to go. Mom and Dad didn't go, I didn't want to go. And uh, there were some great lessons in that, but we'll spare you on that. We'll talk about that later. So Mel never gave up on me. I remember one night somebody talked me to come into a, My first experience with Mel Sabaka was not a good one. Uh, we had a skating activity at the old skating rink that's still over there. And I went, didn't skate. I was a, I was a cool guy. I was a tough guy, you know. And I, I didn't skate. And I was playing the, 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 the um, pinball. pinball machine. Yeah. And I'll never forget, my mom gave me 50, 60, 75 cents. Well, back in the day, 75 cents, you could get a room and, and you know, and, and dinner on it. I mean, it was, that, 75 cents went a long way. And I, was, and I was playing the pinball machine, and I was cracking the thing, you know, and it was lighting up and all that stuff. And old Savaka came over and he says, don't waste your money on that, kid. Put that away. Don't be playing that anymore. And I thought to myself, who is this guy? Well, later on, I, did, I found out who he was. So, for some reason, he always came after me. He told me years later, he said, you know what, I can't explain it. I, I just, God just told me to stay on you. He said, I, 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 say, I saw something in you, and I don't know how to explain it. But I just, every, he said, I said, I, I sent the kids out every, every Tuesday. He said, I wasn't going to give up on you. Well, I got smarter than that, and then so what happened was that on Tuesday night when I knew they were coming, if I wasn't going to get to watch combat anyhow, we didn't have VCRs back then. Uh, we didn't have anything back then. And so what happened is that I'd see them pull up, and they'd come to the front door. I'd run out the back door. I'd cut across the back gate, go over the back field, and I'd be gone. And my mom would upset with me, but what are you going to do, Mom? Quit going to church? You're not going either. So anyway, so she would say, well, he's not here. Well, they knew I was there. So one night, I see him pull up, and I do my deal, and I start going out the back door, and I went out the back door, and there was Mel Sabaka standing there. <laughs> and he says, where are you going? Uh, and, and he, you know, he, he, he never gave up on me. 
And I, I never forgot that. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but years and years and years and years later, years and years and years later, I, I thought to myself, where would I be tonight if, if I would have given up, if he would have given up on me like we give up on so many people? Now, and I realize there's people out there that are going to waste your time. They're going to waste everything you do. I get it. I get it. I get it. But the number one thing if you're going to do the ministry is going to be patience. You're going to be patient with people. And I know we all want people. Don't you think I'd like my church to all be on top of the things and get things done? It ain't going to happen. I've waited for some of you for so long. You know, I'm, I'm old now because I'm waiting on you. And I waited on some of you for five years, and some of you just went on and on and on, and you just, you know, and finally you got it. Finally you got it. I look at some of your faces out here tonight, and you know what? God chased you up one side and down the other forever. And you would go, you're up and you're down, you're in and you're out, and you, you know, and you, you know, you just, you know, and, and then finally one day in your life, you, you, it all came to crystal clear for you. And what had happened? Here you are. And I, I, I never... I may write somebody out, but I'll never write them off. And somebody may leave and they'll be gone, and, uh, and you know, and that's just the way it is. And, and, but I never write them off. Because I know that in my own life, I just thank God that somebody didn't write me off. Most of all, the Lord. That he cared enough about me that he had somebody who saw something in me that... And I was a mess. I'm telling you, I was a conniving little brat. I was a mess. And yet he saw something in me, and thank God for he did, because it paid off. And so I've never forgot that lesson. And where somebody else would be tired of somebody and throw them under the bus and be done with them, I just can't do that. I, I just, I, I, I just got to, I just, I understand that the greatest asset in ministry, if you're going to get in it, is patience. Because you have to wait for people, and sometimes they have to wait longer than you want to wait. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a very patient person when it comes to everything else. If I go through a drive through at McDonald's and there's five or six cars and some idiot up there has ordered everything on the menu, <laughs> I'm, I'm upset. I want to go through, why call, it a, why call it a drive through fast food line when it's taken longer than if you went and went in? And some idiot up there, you know, was then, he, then they get it, and you know what they do? They have to check through everything and make sure it's in there. And then I can read their lips. Can I have a couple more packs of mustard? <laughs> get moving, okay? Do what I do. Keep your mustard and your ketchup in your glove box. I'm not very patient with things. Uh, what it drives me nuts is when you're in the fast lane on the freeway and you got some idiot, the speed limit is 65 miles an hour and you're going 40. You got two other lanes to creep in. You got two other lanes to pull over and have a heart attack in if that's what you want to do. You're in my lane, the fast lane. I got places to go, people to see, the things to do. And you're dragging along there, you know. And, and, I, and I know that's wrong. I ask God to forgive me. I get on their tail with my truck. And then if that doesn't work, I'll pull over here, get up past them, and then cut right over in front of them. I'm sorry. Bible says, confess your faults one to another. Here I am. There's lots of things that I'm not patient in. 
I take my dogs out to go to the bathroom in the morning. I, I don't want them sniffing for 20 minutes. Get out there. Do what you got to do. Let's get on back inside. But when it comes to people, I got patience. I, it's just in the ministry, you have to have it. So those are, your, those are your seven things. And I'm sorry about the confusion there. I wrote these down. And I, I wrote, wrote down one wrong, so I'm sorry about that. But anyway, we'll hold up there. And um, 